State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, you'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Youngsma. In this week's episode, we have one of the foremost authorities in barefoot science, rehabilitation, and education, Dr. Emily Splitchell. I've had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Emily speak on several occasions, and I come out of every conference session and education experience with some great new insights that I can immediately apply to my clients or my own life. As a podiatrist, human movement specialist, and global leader in barefoot science and rehabilitation, Dr. Emily has developed a keen eye for movement dysfunction and neuromuscular control during gait. Originally trained as a surgeon through Beth Israel Medical Center in New York City and Mount Vernon Hospital in Mount Vernon, New York, in 2017, Dr. Emily put down her scalpel and shifted her practice to one that is built around functional and regenerative medicine. Dr. Emily is the founder of the Evidence-Based Fitness Academy, or EBFA, creator of the Barefoot Training Specialist, Barefoot RX, and Bear Workout Certifications, and inventor of Nobosu Barefoot Technology. In this series of episodes, Dr. Emily dives into the anatomy of the foot and ankle, as well as the role that the foot plays in allowing us to optimize performance, manage pain, and become more aware of our environment. Let's dive right in. Welcome, Dr. Emily, to the State of the Industry podcast. How are you today? I'm doing awesome. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, since I found out that you were in Arizona and not in New York, I was a little bit jealous that you're in the heat, as, as warm as it is there versus the cold. Uh, so I wanted to start off just for any listeners who maybe don't know who you are or, or what you do, um, which if they are a personal trainer or somebody who is in the health field um, and is at all in tune with the times with regards to anything barefoot or foot science, I would be surprised if they don't know you because you presented a lot of different conferences. That's actually where I first met you and uh, you put out a lot of great education information. So can you just give a little bit of a background about uh, kind of what you're currently doing and how you got to where you are right now? Absolutely. So yeah, with the barefoot I and the, the doctor side of my name is I'm a podiatrist. I, I consider myself more of a functional podiatrist, which means I look at the body from an integrated perspective, holistically factoring in many aspects to uh, the complex beings that we are. And then I'm also a human movement specialist. I have my master's in human movement, have been in the fitness industry for over 20 years On in the context of um, started as a trainer, teaching group exercise, and then eventually got into education, as you had referenced, yeah. and then still teaching a little bit of barefoot classes, barefoot workouts. Um, and really my career is built around kind of the intermix of those three layers, being fitness, being a movement specialist, and then being a podiatrist, the they all interconnect, but the underlying tone is obviously feet, that would be the podiatry degree, yeah. and how important our feet are from a sensory perspective, a fascial perspective, uh, and giving or making it accessible, how to understand this a very complex part of the body. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And 
so you mentioned that you are a functional podiatrist and what was the, maybe the catalyst that kind of pushed you towards the functional side versus the, I guess, common kind of prescribing side of uh, podiatry and, and podorthists who often will give orthotics and things like that and, and, and shoes to fix problems as opposed to what you provide. Yeah, hundred percent. So my training was very much based around orthotics, shoe structure. And then here in the U S we are trained as surgeons. So it was very surgical based, um, very much disconnected from my appreciation of movement that I went into podiatry school with my fitness background and being an athlete. So that was, you know, really an important foundation to how I went to podiatry school. And then I realized how segregated or non-integrated the training is and very classic Western medicine of Mm -hmm. we need a medication for that. We need to do surgery on that. And my backgrounds kind of kept getting in the way of me challenging what was told that I was just like, I don't think that that's the only option or can't we do X, Y, or Z? So I constantly challenge things. um, And that's really why or how I got into my master's in human movement is that I was kind of going down the path that I was forced to go down, which was very isolated and very surgically driven. Mm -hmm. And I was in my residency, which is a three-year, three-year surgical residency. I was in the first year, six to nine months in, and just so unhappy because everything that I had to tell these patients was I can do surgery. I can do surgery because I had to learn to do surgery. So I had to push surgery so I could learn to do surgery. Um, And it was just, uh, it was just so fighting what I felt was right and the way that I wanted to represent myself. So I left residency, actually quit, (laughs) took a break from my medical track, which is uh, very scary and probably would not advise that to others (laughs) going down this path. Um, But during that, I then found a graduate school here in Arizona, ironically, that had a master's in human movement. Mm. And that that kind of spoke to me. And while I was getting my master's in human movement was the exact same time that the barefoot running boom happened. Mm. So this was 2008, 9, 10, kind of around that period. And all these minimal shoes were coming out. And I saw it as this perfect opportunity to apply the podiatry background with the fitness background. And then what I was studying in my master's and it just kind of being in the right place at the right time, I would suppose. And then eventually when I went back to residency, which I had to, to get licensed, I, I was essentially just saying what I had to say to kind of answer it like the test question, right? Yeah. What does the test want you to answer? That's not really not the right answer yeah. in real life, right? I'm sure listeners totally know what I'm saying. Oh yeah. Um, but that's essentially what I did is I, I got through residency just to, I played the game to get my license. And then now I'm able to use this integrated perspective that I appreciated coming in. And then I developed through my master's and then I've just continued to develop over the last 10 years um, just through advanced trainings and research that's come out since there. And it's been really exciting to help people in a way that feels right to me. Yeah. And I think your experience in your residency was probably, as you said, very, very similar to what a lot of people, even if they're not doctors or surgeons, but even in like kin degrees or, you know, human kinetics degrees, whatever they're going into, and they're learning these things. And yet there's, I always find that education is 10 years behind where we are right now. And, and even if we look at like the writing of textbooks, it's the same thing, right? So you start writing a textbook, well, you know, four years, three years after you started writing it, all the information that's in it is three, four years behind where we are. And the fitness and health industry, um, even medicine, it's so quick in advancing because we're constantly doing research. There's a lot of money in it and people th- are thinking differently now. I, I just find that like, it's so far behind all the time, right? So I think getting into the education side of things, specifically in the schools, like after you graduate, doing education is great, but now you're fighting almost a losing battle against people who've been taught something the entire time. Yeah, I mean, that's what I feel that I get a lot of 
pushback from my colleagues and I did initially much more so than today because it's you know almost 10 years later so like you said almost 10 years so yes in the last 10 years do I see a difference in even research studies so there are a lot of barefoot rehab research studies or minimal shoe research studies you get to see evidence 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 or data around all of these things that I and others were speaking about 10 years ago but even at that the actual programming in the medical school level or the graduate school level will take even longer to change because you have um, uh, like history in a lot Mm -hmm. of these just historical trends of how things are taught and you it's very bureaucratic of how things curriculum is changed in a school they're they're not going to be um kind of like oh let's just start bringing in fascial lines and kind of all these other things and integrate that that may just from maybe a side workshop from the sports medicine academy mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. have a guest lecture to that side club yeah. you might get introduced to it So I encourage all the people that are listening that have either recently graduated or are in school still that you kind of play the game to get the baseline data and then just know that there's this whole wide exciting world outside of school in your required curriculum that allows you to feed your passion and your curiosity and your growth as a clinician. And that's that's what my education company fosters and that's what I had to seek out and that there are opportunities to seek that out yeah yeah and I love that and and I know the company that I I run as well like we do a whole bunch of education and I told you like I mentioned that I teach at Centennial College I think before we got on and I might I might be maybe an exception, but like I'm constantly changing everything that I'm doing all the time, right? Like I'm always in the research and every single time I learn something new, it's in a course like the next day. I don't wait to make sure like it's as soon as I hear something new, I'll do some research on it, find some studies and be like, okay, yeah, this makes sense, you know, and then I'll integrate it into the, so I'm trying to stay even in the college like situation environment, I'm trying to stay on top of everything all the time. Because I think I feel the same way that you do, that this should be something that we're all learning now, not just in 10 years from now, once, you know, it gets into the schools. But, um, so you have a very, uh, a, a great quote on your website, and I'm actually going to just pop into your website. So, so right when you go to your website, where right before you actually enter the site, it's a Leonardo da Vinci quote, and it says, the human foot is a masterpiece of engineering and a work of art. And I absolutely love that quote. Can you, because I want to get into the anatomy, can you speak about why you truly believe that that is true, that it is a masterpiece and a work of art? Yeah, I mean, the foot is fascinatingly complex. And when I teach my workshops, one, that's that's the first goal of any workshop that I teach or lecture when I'm at a conference or a webinar, whatever it is that I'm doing, is that I want people to first start with an appreciation of the complexity of the foot, mm-hmm. right? It, it, kind of like a respect. I respect this part of the body, which is amazing in the amount of force that it can generate and the structural integrity and the neuromuscular sensory anticipatory side to it. So it's, it's just fascinating to me. I do Mm -hmm. think it's a work of art. I do think it's very complex and it does require some respect. Um, I often will say that that's why podiatry school is four years and we are studying nothing but the feet. If this was easy, it would be, you know, a semester course or something like that. Mm -hmm. Very complex. And a lot of other doctors who are even like orthopedists will be like, <laughs> I will send you the feet because there's, they're like, there's too many little bones and all these subtle things that they just don't understand the unique nature of some of the injuries. Yeah. Um, so it, it is unique. It is complex. And like I'd said that a lot of it is built around the functional demands of this part of the body uh, mechanically 
the demands, mm -hmm. meaning, oh, there's so many bones and joints and ligaments and muscles that are there. That's uh, complex. But then from a fascial perspective, it is very complex. And it's one part of the body where you actually get this um, interconnection or running into each other of fascial lines. Yep. And I often say that when when fascial lines insert onto other fascial lines, that is a very fast connection, which means just kind of mechanically or functionally, that is a necessary fast connection, which you can find those on the bottom of the foot. And then from a sensory perspective, meaning proprioceptive and mechanoceptive, the skin in the bottom of the foot is very unique and complex. Mm -hmm. That is really important to how we stand on our two feet and how we are able to walk 20,000 times a day, 20,000 steps a day, subconsciously stabilizing this pattern, not fall down and be able to make these executive decisions at the same time. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's just very fascinating. Yeah. And I think, as you mentioned, it's, it's a very unappreciated part of the body. It's often seen as something that's uh, for a lot of people disgusting, like people, they all feet, I don't want to see them. They stink. Like I wrap them up. I put socks on them, fancy socks, sometimes shoes on them, like anything to get rid of them and hide them for a lot of people. Uh, you know, people are like, Oh, your foot rubs. Yeah. I don't give foot rubs. I'm not, I'm not a foot person. Right. That's what they often say. And yeah, I think, like I, I, like you have fallen in love with the foot. Uh, and I believe that I truly appreciate the role that that foot plays in uh, balance in lifting in athletics, in the sensory inputs that it feeds into the body, its ability to uh, modulate even pain, you know, neural inputs, uh, neuromodulate tone and stuff like it's, it's a phenomenal structure. But as you said, it's very, very complex. And it for a lot of people, I think it's hard to understand. So they just like, well, just give me the basic information of what I need to know. And like, we'll, we'll leave it at that. I'm not one of those people. So we're going to dive in a little bit to some of the key structures that I know I've sat in on a few of your conference sessions before and heard you speak about. Um, so, and, and you can fill in the blanks wherever they may be, if you think there are some other important structures, but let's just start off in the foot and we'll just start off with like the great toe, the first ray, the joint, and the importance of that for, uh, not only balance sensory input, but also gait as well. Okay. So if we want to start at the front of the foot, normally I start at the back of the foot, but we'll oh, totally oh. talk about the start of the foot, the front uh -huh. of the foot, um, the great toe is one that I think is easy conceptually to appreciate and to understand, uh, where if, if we take it to gait or walking, one of the important evolutionary changes that happened with bipedalism is, actually, let me go back. If foundational concept around bipedalism and walking is that our walking pattern needs to be efficient. Mm -hmm. It's just from evolution and energy and making sure that you get enough cerebral blood flow so that the neocortex grows. This is brain protective. It was necessary for the development of the homo sapien brain that we know was our standing on two feet and our starting to walk or be bipedal. Mm -hmm. So that efficient bipedal gait requires us to take long enough strides or steps right? So each step that we take needs to be of a certain length so that we can drive reciprocal or the opposite arm swing, which if people are just doing that at home and you kind of mimic your right leg stepping forward and your left arm coming across, you'll feel that your pelvis is going one way and then your rib cage is going in the opposite direction, yeah. right? So these are counter rotations in the body. Those counter rotations are necessary for energy transfer, but they're also necessary for how we wind and unwind our fascia. And fascia is the connective tissue energy transfer system yeah. of our body, which makes you efficient. Now, one of the limiting factors to stride length and walking efficiently is that you need hip extension because you have to get your leg behind you 
And then hip extension is directly related to dorsiflexion of your MPJs, mainly mm -hmm. your first MPJ is what's usually limited. So people, again, who are listening, you kind of put yourself in that position and bring one leg back and you're pretending to take a long stride. Now imagine if your big toe did not dorsiflex, what are you going to do? What's going to change? Well, you're going to shorten your stride. Mm -hmm. And when you shorten your stride, you stop swinging your arms and rotating your rib cage and your pelvis the same. So you kind of start to lock down your skeletal and your myofascial structures. You become less efficient. When you're less efficient, you start to use muscles instead of fascia to move. And now you increase your risk of injury because you are fatiguing your system, moving muscularly, and then things to start to shut off and you compensate. Mm -hmm. So that's really, that's how I like to look at the big toe is it is a necessary uh, connector or driver of bipedalism and stride length for efficient movement. Now I see changes in first MPJ dorsiflexion or the great toe with bunions is, yeah. is a huge one um, with athletes who may have had turf toe or some sort of traumatic stubbing of the toe. And now they start to get into this accelerated traumatic arthritis growth, yeah. or it could be um, in those that have certain structures in their feet, flat feet or overpronation, you typically see the bunions with drives to the arthritis or just an aging population and you start to get arthritic changes with age. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's a way that you can start to think about the importance of the great toe. Okay. And then, so the, I guess the next joint up from there would then be that first ray, right? So the separation between that that first metatarsal and the second metatarsal and its ability to actually move, which in a lot of people who wear specifically firm shoes or on hard surfaces all day, it doesn't really get much movement, right? Because there's no separation between all those metatarsals in the foot. So how does that joint influence the kind of mechanics as you move kind of up the foot and then up the lower limb. Okay, so to appreciate the first MPJ, I wanna start by having people find it and then move it on their, their own. So we'll, I'll just kind of take you through that. So for anyone who's the same, you wanna participate with me is I am going to take my, look at my left foot and I'm gonna take my left hand and grab metatarsals two, three, four, five with one hand. And then my right hand is going to grab metatarsal one. And while keeping the foot relaxed, I'm going to move only my right hand, which is on the first metatarsal. And I can move the first metatarsal up and down, right? So that's the first ray. I want people to feel that the first ray, which is the first metatarsal into the medial cuneiform has its own axis. And it goes up and it goes down. Yes, there's a little bit of internal external rotation and things like that, but we'll just focus on the sagittal motion, dorsiflex, plantar flex. The stability of that joint is necessary for actually we go forward back to the joint I just spoke about, which is your big toe. Mm -hmm. So the movement and the timing and the stability of your first ray dictates the range of motion or the dorsiflexion of the first MPJ. Now, the way that your first ray moves when you try to dorsiflex your big toe is it has to plantar flex or go down, mm. okay? And that's something that when I teach workshops, I tell people, don't try to logically deduct this. Like you just have to memorize it, right? Yeah. That part of first MPJ dorsiflexion is first rate plantar flexion. And the timing of it is very important of when it happens in the gait cycle. Now that plantar flexion of the first ray is necessary to dorsiflex the first MPJ high enough or to, the, to a certain degree because if you ever look at or you Google a foot x-ray of someone in a high heel, you can actually do that because it'll give you a good position or a dancer, yeah. right? 
I want people to see when they look at the x-ray or appreciate that the base of the toe is actually on the top of the metatarsal head. Mm -hmm. that, that's how much motion you need in the first ray to get your big toe to dorsiflexion. So when we walk, your first metatarsal it's plantar flexing, but it's actually not plantar flexing into the ground. It is going posterior. And I know that there's not a video, so it's kind of hard yeah. to demonstrate this. But if people could imagine that as your foot goes over your big toe, there's a point that it actually goes posterior, meaning away from your body so that you can get over the head of the first metatarsal. Yeah. It's a concept that is complex and sometimes confusing. And to the lay person or to, you know, Google education, you don't understand this. And then yeah. I get a lot of professionals who are confused mm -hmm. and they think that if I want to increase dorsiflexion of the big toe, I can just go against a wall and prop my toe up and force it forward. Or I can kind of go in a child pose position, but tuck my toes under and just sit on my feet for a period or just pull my toe and force it. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. It's a complex mechanic. Your first MPJ is not a hinge. It's not like my elbow and I'm just, you know, bending it or my knee and just extending it and getting range of motion that way. Yeah. The first ray influence on the big toe is huge. Yeah. It's like the, the distal aspect of that, first metatarsal you have to actually move it kind of inferior posterior to get the the rest of the joint that distal joint out of the way to allow that that dorsiflexion of that first mpj yeah yep yep absolutely yeah. and when you look at it on a cadaver or you know when i would do surgery is the cartilage of your first mpj actually wraps you, mm. you can see because we're on the video but actually yeah. wrap on top of the first metatarsal head mm -hmm. showing that when you are in a maximally dorsiflex position, you're still on cartilage, even though you're on the top of the first met head. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, so uh, since I'm going backwards in the foot, I'm going to let you kind of, um, I, like, I know I want to talk about obviously the, the primary, pieces of the foot, like the primary joints within the foot. And we can kind of expand to the fascia and the muscles in there as well and talk about the foot core and all that type of thing. Uh, and then obviously the arches, but I'm going to let you kind of lead because I'm going backwards. <laughs> so can you describe some of the primary structures in the foot as you would starting from, I guess, the hind foot moving towards the forefoot as opposed to the forefoot to the hind foot? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I would, if we, we'll stay on the track that you did as far as okay. the great toe and then the first ray influences the great toe. So our next question would be, well, what influences the first ray, mm -hmm. right? If the first ray is not stable, this is how you get bunions. So a bunion is actually a swinging out of the first ray because you've lost ligament stability. And so that, that's an important understanding. Yeah. So we might say, okay, well, what destabilizes that first ray to potentially cause jamming at the big toe or bunions? That goes to the hind foot and that would be overpronation okay. or an unstable rear foot, meaning subtalar joints and talonavicular joints or subtalar joints and ankle joints. But there's, there's an unlocking of the rear foot which is causing a loss of stability in the first ray, which is causing the bunion or the jamming into the first MPJ. So that, that's how you can kind of interrelate those three areas. Okay. Now, if we want to talk briefly about unlocking or overpronation and make it confusing for the listeners, <laughs> just kidding, is that there is a rear foot pronation and a midfoot pronation. There's actually two different ways that you can think about it. And when I say midfoot, the part of the foot that I'm referencing is really the relationship around your navicular. Yeah. And that is, it's the most prominent bone on the inside of the foot. So again, for the listeners, 
who want to play it with me is that if you feel along the inside of your foot and you shut your eyes and you just kind of feel along there, you'll feel that one of the bones sticks out a little bit more than the others. It's just a little bit more prominent or in some people who have an accessory navicular, it's actually quite prominent. That's your navicular bone. That is the highest point of your medial arch. So when I say you have a high arch or you have a low arch, really I'm saying you have a high navicular or you have a low navicular or your navicular dropped as soon as you stood up or something like that. Now the navicular relationship with the talus is really the midfoot joint. That joint with your subtalar joint can pronate, but so can your subtalar joint with the ankle joint. So there's two, two types. Yeah. The one that is more damaging or more difficult to control is the midfoot. Midfoot pronation is often associated with ligament laxity. And it's one that I typically put those patients into orthotics because it is more associated with ligament laxity. It's harder to control. Whereas rear foot pronation, you can do glute strengthening, posterior tibialis strengthening, intrinsic strengthening, core strengthening, and get a decent correction out of that rear foot pronation. Very interesting. Um, so I actually wanted to, to pause and, and just chat a little bit more about bunions because um, my mother-in-law has bunions. She's had multiple surgeries now on her bunions. And uh, I, my wife as well ha has the start of bunions as well. And now she's had this structure in her foot for as long as I've known her and as long as she's been able to realize that she's got um, a, a little bit of a bump on the medial side of that, uh, that first MPJ joint. So when we're talking, because now I'm like, okay, well, let's figure out how we can help people who also have bunions to stay away from surgery, because um, it's a pain in the rear end to try to break a whole bunch of bones and straighten out toes and shave off things and you're off your feet. And then it, like, it's a cascade effect, right? Like, I always think a surgery is like you're you're causing an injury to solve another injury. And, and so how's your body going to respond to that injury you just put on them, right? So when it comes to bunions, so you mentioned that a lot of that has to do with laxity in that, that first MPJ, and it's actually uh, rotating and, and, and kind of coming medially, the distal ones coming medially out, out to the side. So what are some things that we could do just for bunions specifically to help improve that over pronation and the kind of medial movement. Yes. Yeah, so uh, bunions, there's a couple things when it comes to bunions is understanding that they are most often caused by a functional deficit, would you say, where maybe that functional deficit is over pronation. And is that overpronation because of a weak posterior tibialis or intrinsic muscles? Maybe, um, but it could also be associated where perhaps in your wife's case, more of this ligament laxity. Now, oftentimes I will see that the ligament laxity association, the individual gets bunions younger. Yeah. So it's usually when they're a teenager. So they'll say, oh, I had bunions since I was 16 or ever since I can remember is what often yeah. patients say, but which really means when they're teenagers. And that's referred to as a juvenile hallux velvis is what the actual medical diagnosis is or the term. Mm -hmm. And that is always associated with a ligament laxity. Yeah. That bunion, similar to midfoot pronation is much more difficult to prevent or slow down or correct through exercise because you have this ligamentous breakdown and very high force going through the foot. Mm -hmm. Remember that when we walk and we jump and we run, we have, you know, one and a half to 10 times our body weight going through our feet yeah. in force, that that's a lot of pressure that's going through these small joints, which means you bottom them out very easily because of a lack of ligamentous structure. Mm -hmm. Now, those that might be 
on the earlier side. So it's a smaller bunion that's just starting to progress. And maybe there's a low grade pronation in the foot. This is where I turn towards corrective exercise, foot strengthening, um, intrinsics, glute, core, post-tib, barefoot, things like that, that you're trying to just get this foundational strength into the feet. Yeah. Now, once a bunion gets to a certain point, you can't, you can't reverse a bunion without surgery on the understanding that a bunion is assessed by what's called the intermetatarsal angle. Mm. So it's actually the opening up of the metatarsals, yeah. the bump, and then the angulation of the big toe is just a symptom of the cause. So mm. that's not, that's not really the Richter scale of do I have a bunion or not, or how progressed is my, of my, my bunion based off of the angulation of the toe. Yeah. So what a lot of people will say is, no, no, I started using correct toes and strengthening my feet and doing all these things and massage and look, my toe sits straighter. I corrected my bunion. I call bullshit on you, Dr. Spickle. And I said, well, hold on. <laughs> Before we get excited here, let's wait, right? If I looked at an x-ray, I would probably still see the same increased or opened intermetatarsal angle, mm -hmm. which shows that their bunion is still there. Did they yeah. just pull the toe a little bit straighter? Sure. So aesthetically, cosmetically, their foot looks better. That's mm -hmm. great. That's actually a benefit. I wouldn't tell people to not do it. Yeah. But I just want people, especially clinicians, to be very careful of the words that they use mm -hmm. because you want to make sure you sound educated when you are saying that, when you're speaking to colleagues especially, or you're not giving false hope to a patient, which is what I'm very much against, is giving false hope to patients based off of blanket statements yeah. like X equals Y or a always equals B, which we know that that's not the case in the human body. Mm -hmm. Would I better align or more centrate the great toe in relationship to the metatarsal so that it decreases some of the stress around the joint and maybe you fit a little bit better in your shoes and you feel more comfortable when you wear sandals? Sure, let's go with that. Yeah. Versus I'm going to reverse and take away that bump on your foot. Really yeah. Different. Yeah, and I think having an understanding that correcting ligament laxity is something that doesn't really happen at any joint, really. Um, a lot of times it is muscular stability or, you know, tone and muscles being changed. And as you said, just to change the orientation of that great toe, not necessarily to change the direction or the angulation of that, that first metatarsal. Yeah, so, okay, good to know. Now I can pass that along to my wife. All right, so uh, let's kind of move into uh, and talking about the ankle a little bit and the different movements that go on in the ankle during something like gait, so during walking, and how all those different joints and the cascade effect, you know, up and down that kinetic chain, uh, and how they interact, as you said, to create optimal function and optimal movement and efficient movement in gait. So the ankle is another really complex and fascinating structure that people often look at as kind of like a hinge also, that they just think dorsiflex, plantar flex, isn't it like the elbow or the knee, which it would be great if it was that simple. We would not have the myriad of issues that we do have with say limited ankle dorsiflexion and we just could stretch the calves and get more dorsiflexion. Yeah. Um, but when we look at the ankle, yes, it does dorsiflex, plantar flex, which is the sagittal plane. That would be kind of more the hinge action that we're thinking of, but it is moving in the other planes as well. And one of the most dominant planes that it moves in outside of the sagittal is going to be the transverse. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna have people, if they want to join me again to appreciate that, is I'm going to feel my right ankle. So I'm gonna take my right hand and I'm gonna grab both of my melioli at the same time. So my medial and lateral melioli at the same time. And I like that people start 
by appreciating that the inside malleolus, which is the tibia, sits higher than the outside lateral malleolus, which is your fibula, mm-hmm. right? So this, this higher orientation. And then again, if you shut your eyes and you feel, you can appreciate that the tibia sits in front of the fibula. So it sits higher and in front. So if you were to bisect your malleoli, you would get an oblique axis. Mm-hmm. That oblique axis tells you that the motion of the ankle is not just isolated sagittal, right? If it was just straight across, it would be sagittal. We have this oblique nature, which means that every time we dorsiflex, there's this transverse abductory movement that happens. Mm -hmm. And then when we plantar flex, we start to get this adductory, adductory movement as well. They're coupled. So this coupled motion is important with foot and ankle joints because one, it adds that layer of complexity, but it helps you to understand where compensation patterns happen. Mm -hmm. So when we walk, when we squat, we do different dynamic movement, the motion of the ankle that is typically restricted that drives compensation is going to be dorsiflexion. We need to have a certain degree of dorsiflexion And dorsiflexion is important because it loads our fascial elastic system. It's Mm -hmm. part of energy transfers. You have to get that dorsiflexion to to prime the Achilles tendon to give you some recoil. So it's Mm -hmm. necessary for movement. Now, if you can't dorsiflex in the sagittal, your body takes this compensatory path of least resistance which is going to be in the other plane of motion, which is transverse. So people start to abduct through their ankle versus dorsiflex through the ankle. Mm -hmm. And when they abduct, they start to collapse into the lateral gutter of their ankle and it forces the forefoot out. And then they, of course, ever into the subtalar joint and then, hello, now you have pronation or overpronation, right? And then that's where you start to see uh, internal rotation of your lower legs. So if people want to go through it with me again, which is a little bit easier than visually, is standing up and moving your feet from the outside edges of the feet to the inside edges of the feet. And you essentially just go back and forth through that. That helps listeners start to appreciate baseline movement of the foot. You're actually moving your subtalar joints, mm-hmm. inversion and eversion. And as you do that, and you keep going from the outside of your feet to the inside of the feet and just keep doing that, and you start to look at your knees, you should feel that every movement of your foot creates rotations up your lower extremity. Mm -hmm. Those rotations are how you load and unload energy. So it's an energy mechanism. When When you avoid dorsiflexion and you abduct, it forces eversion into your subtalar joint, which is falling towards the inside of the foot. For those that are standing up, you should see that your knees just knocked inward. You just got a valgus knee. Mm -hmm. So internal rotation, that was internal rotation. So that's kind of what's coupled with it. People who internally rotate excessively because maybe they have insufficient ankle dorsiflexion and they compensate by everting and abducting the rear foot, increase internal rotation and start to get excess valgus stress to the knees or a medial knee pain, Mm -hmm. which can go further up the hips. And now we have an anterior tilt and we have internal rotation of the hips and now your glutes don't engage and you have underactive core and it leads to a myriad of issues as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, once again, the complexity of the movements going on and the like the closeness, right? Like there's so many joints in the foot and the closeness of all of them and just the subtlety of all those little movements needing to work together in unison at the right time to the right amount. And oftentimes we don't understand it one, but then also don't put our foot in the right position to be able to do a lot of those movements anyways, right? So we run into issues with that because you do see a lot of people come into the clinics, come into uh, gym fitness facilities and terrible movement. And when you look at the foot, 
the foot is doing everything that you're talking, like it's not dorsiflexing properly. It's, it's starting to overpronate and we're starting to see a little bit of a collapse of the arch, or maybe they have, you know, um, you know, a, a, a flat foot or whatever they've got. You start to see if you're looking from the back, the Achilles tendons start to lean in when they go down into their squat, right? Because they're trying to, as you said, find a compensation because your body's always thinking, I just need to complete that. You're asking me to complete this movement. I just need to complete it. I'm assuming it's important, right? Because you're forcing me to do this. So I'm just going to do whatever I can to complete it for you. And I hope you're happy with it basically. Right? Yeah. And then honestly, what makes it even more complex is let's say if you've identified that the ankle is the driver of this compensation pattern, now it's the clinician or the trainer, the professional's responsibility to say, well, what's limiting the ankle? Is it mm -hmm. soft tissue? Is it osseous? Is it that the tail is shifted forward? Do they have spurs or osteophytes on the front of the ankle? Do they have a tight Achilles tendon? Do they have a short Achilles tendon? Do they have high tonicity or spasticity to the soleus? Or do they just need to stretch their calves? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And there's a lot to that. Cause I know for me, actually, no, we'll, we'll get to me. We'll, we'll talk about that before we get to me. We have to actually talk about foot arches a little bit first, because mine has to do with a foot arch. And I want to, I have a question that I've always wanted to know the answer to because biomechanically it makes sense to me, but I, I want your professional input. So let's talk about the foot arches. Um, so medial lateral, lateral longitudinal arch, transverse arches, um, very complex, very necessary for absorption, transfer of force, all those types of things. So can you just talk a little bit about the arches and the importance of each one individually, and then them as kind of the system with the rest of the fascia on the bottom of that foot? Yes. So we have a medial longitudinal arch, which is the inside of the foot. That's the one that most people reference when they say arch or arches. Now the high point, remember I said the highest point of the medial arch is the navicular. So the navicular position is what is referenced when you are saying medial arch. Mm -hmm. What controls the medial arch height is dynamically the posterior tibialis, which inserts on it. That's a dynamic arch stabilizer or a dynamic supinator. So just statically, it's not lifting the arch per se. Yep. It's more on ambulation. And then really it's ligamentous structures. So you have a ligament that runs underneath your talus and under the navicular, which is called the spring ligament. And this is a very important ligament where if someone potentially has ligament laxity and it bottoms out that navicular, to try to override that lax or insufficient ligament through muscular strength. It just, you are defying physics here. Mm -hmm. It's just not possible, yeah. but that's another stabilizer. Your abductor hallucis, which is a intrinsic muscle that you engage. If people are familiar with short foot, it's often the intrinsic muscle that is researched when people do short foot. When they do like EMG studies, they'll put it on, on the abductor hallucis. One of the actions of the abductor hallucis is it lifts the navicular bone. Hmm. So it is a like a hammock underneath that bone. So which is why when people start to lose their navicular position, I prescribe short foot exercise to try to lift that up. Yeah. So that, that's really where you're getting most of the control of the medial longitudinal arch. Your plantar fascia is not going to play a role in this. So if I were to cut or someone would rupture their plantar fascia, you would not suddenly bottom out your foot. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work that way. Now your lateral longitudinal arch, if you think of you're looking at the foot and you go and again, you want to kind of identify this with me. If you take your hand on the outside of your foot and you'll feel there's a really prominent bone that's going to be the base of your fifth metatarsal, which is also called your styloid. And then if you go back towards your heel, one thumb, and then go up a thumb, that's going to be a bone called your cuboid. Now your cuboid sits right next to your navicular and your cuboid is going to be the highest point of your lateral arch, right? Similar to the navicular. Yeah. Your cuboid dictates or is 
the stability of the cuboid is dictated by a muscle tendon called the peroneus longus. And the peroneus longus, your perineals, peroneus brevis and longus together run along the outside of your lower leg. And then they go behind your lateral malleolus or your fibula. And then they go brevis inserts on your styloid longus goes underneath your cuboid, goes diagonally across the foot, and then inserts onto the base of the first ray or the base of the first metatarsal. Really, it's the first ray, it's both of them. So there is a, a baseline tension or pull of the peroneus longus that is upward. And when that pull of the peroneus longus pulls upward, just from tone, it lifts the cuboid. Now, for anyone who has heard of cuboid syndrome, cuboid syndrome is when your cuboid drops. Okay, so it's a dropping of your lateral arch is kind of what people could think of it. Now, the most common cause of that is a loss of tone slash tension in the peroneus longus. Mm -hmm. And what creates a loss of tone or tension in your peroneus longus is rear foot pronation. So when you unlock your rear foot and you imagine a foot collapsing into pronation, you just put your peroneus longus on slack. So mm -hmm. I'm making all these gestures, <laughs> which, which no one can see, but they're trying to demonstrate that when something drops, something else loses tension, right? Mm -hmm. So we kind of need that, like when you, when you sit up, like if everyone sits up in their chair, right, there's kind of like tone, and then if I just like, like collapse into gravity, you could just feel that there's going to be things that lose their tendon tension. Yeah. That's kind of what's happening with the pronius longus. Mm -hmm. So when someone starts to lose their lateral longitudinal arch or they experience cuboid syndrome is we need to make sure that their rear foot is not pronating. Maybe we need to correct it through orthotics. Typically you do in the case of severe cuboid syndrome. And then when things calm down, you can start to use corrective exercise, but you really just wanna make sure that the cuboid is sitting up. There's a manipulation that you can actually uh, relocate the cuboid. You can kind of pop it back up in place, mm -hmm. but it's not really fixing the root cause of yeah. the issue. Um, so that would be the lateral longitudinal arch. Now you have a transverse arch which you can think about coming across the met heads. So the ball of the foot of the met heads. And what your transverse arch does is that it helps, it's gonna probably not make sense, but it helps to take tension off of the met heads and prepare the lever of the foot. Mm -hmm. So the transverse arch, all of the arches, purpose of the arch, which I know you asked, is to allow the foot to become a rigid lever. Now, the rigid lever position of the foot is when you do like a calf raise. So again, for anyone who's listening, if you want to do a calf raise or just lift your heels in your chair and you look at the foot and it looks like it's in a stiletto position, that is called a rigid lever. Now, the rigid lever, the fact that you're the, the weight distribution over the MPJs is stabilized by that transverse arch. Mm -hmm. Now, where the transverse arch is also related to metatarsal declination, which I'm probably making this way more complex than you wanted. No, so I do, do apologize. It. But <laughs> metatarsal declination is part of what shaped this transverse arch. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, where people start to lose their transverse arch is in the case where people start to lose metatarsal height, let's say, where you can get a second met that drops or a third met drops. And then people get this pinpoint pressure under one met head. Yeah. And then you're just like, well, how do I deal with this? Right. They, they're starting to lose the integrity of that transverse arch. Yeah. The transverse arch and really all of our arches are shaped by intrinsic muscle tone. Your intrinsic muscles are really postural muscles. Mm -hmm. So this tone of the intrinsic muscles and then also your plantar fascia. Yeah. So your plantar fascia actually plays a larger role in the transverse arch than the 
longitudinal arches, which a lot of consumers or lay people think the plantar fascia controls the longitudinal arches, but it's actually the transverse arch. Yeah. And so you, you mentioned, and that's not too much. I love, I love the depth of information. So it's never too much. Um, so you were talking about with regards to somebody starts to lose a little bit of the medial longitudinal arch short foot's really good to get that, um, that, um, abductor halysis working, uh, Lateral longitudinal arch, you mentioned that typically you'd put them into an orthotic first, and then once, I guess, the pain, all that kind of subsided a little bit, then, or during that, I guess, you're going to start getting a little bit more exercise, some specific intrinsic foot muscle strengthening in there. And then same thing with the transverse arch. So can you provide us either with a couple different exercises that people could do for both those, the lateral longitudinal arch and the transverse arch, um, or, or some resources that they can go? Because I know you have done videos for short foot and they're, they're on YouTube and everything. So I, like I've watched those before because you're who I found out about short foot from. So can you just go through a couple of those um, for the listeners? Yes, yeah, so the uh, short foot really is my go-to exercise for literally almost everything, <laughs> which makes me sound like I don't have a big library of exercises, <laughs> but it really is an effective exercise. And I'm much more of a fan of integrated exercises mm-hmm. uh, versus isolated joint resistance band exercises. I, I think that they're good to wake up muscles but do they transfer to function? Not necessarily, unless you're training it in a functional pattern that will actually transfer to function. Mm-hmm. So that, that's why most of my stuff is single leg, short foot, foot to core based exercises. Yeah. Um, so short, short foot, where short foot would work for the medial arch, we already said that the abductor hallucis gets strengthened, right? And it's going to lift the navicular. For the lateral arch, you need to control the rear foot pronation. So is the degree of rear foot pronation something that you can correct through intrinsic strengthening short foot, right? So there's a correlation between lifting the medial arch and controlling the lateral arch. They Mm -hmm. kind of dance together. And then of course, so does the the transverse arch. So you can kind of hit them all in a cascade. But if the degree of rear foot pronation is more than or excessive than can what what can be controlled through corrective exercise they may need an orthotic yeah or you can actually use some wedges that are on you can get them on the markets uh it's called a varus post and you can buy them okay. online just google varus post you can put them in the shoes or train with them and you prop it under the heel on the inside and it'll pull them into a more neutral position which will lift the medial arch and once you stabilize the medial arch now you just put a better baseline tension on the tendon of the pronius longus Mm -hmm. do you see how you kind of need to correct one to correct the other yeah and then for the transverse arch and the plantar fascia short foot of course ties in that as well but the the reason that short foot activates the plantar fascia to strengthen the transverse arch is that the action of short foot is pushing the toes down into the ground. That's mm-hmm. really what it is over oversimplified, but you're anchoring or grounding yourself through the tips or the distal aspect of the digits. Yeah. As soon as you do that, you feel the muscles contract, you feel the arches lift, you actually come off of the ball of the foot. Okay. So that's short foot. That's the action. Your plantar fascia does that action as well. And it's referred to as the reverse windless mechanism. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think of windless mechanism. They've heard of that. And that's when you bend the big toe back, your plantar fascia tightens, you essentially prime it with potential energy, and then you release it to take a step. The reverse windless mechanism is when your toes are purchasing or anchoring into the ground which is short foot same thing but when you do that that is a mechanism of your plantar fascia as it relates to the plantar plate so the plantar plate 
runs underneath all of the MPJs and it is the primary stabilizing structure of the MPJ. And it's actually your plantar fascia. So mm. it's, it's a ligament, but it's your plantar fascia. And its action is to pull your toe down to create purchase. Mm. Now, when you do that, it lifts you off of the ball of the foot. It, it creates like a space or just a baseline retrograde tension in the foot to then get you off of your met heads. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, because uh, as you said, I'm familiar with the, the windlass mechanism, but I hadn't looked at the reverse windlass. So I'll have to do a little bit more digging into, into that for sure. Um, I love it. So what I want to do is, is I think this is a great place to pause part one because I want to start getting into in part number two, talking more about now that we understand a little bit more about the biomechanics, a little bit more about the anatomy of the foot, starting to talk about the importance of training barefoot, being barefoot often, what we can do for pain and to help heal a foot that's been in a shoe for an extended period of time, or if you've been on your feet all day on hard, flat surfaces, and uh, get a little bit more into that. And we will do that in uh, part number two. Sounds awesome. State of the Industry Podcast. I'll be back.